0: So we painted him on the side or her. We had to change it to a her because donkeys are incredibly well endowed. And you just can't take good pictures of
1: them without doing some work. That's what my wife says about me too.
0: Yeah, I've heard that. So not being the sharpest knives in the drawer, it took us a little bit of time to ship the name. It took me 19 years to get from zero to 500 million. I think that having done that the secret is in order to be in business we had to make money but we weren't in business to make money. I mean there was more to it than that. The intellectual rigor that it requires to start a business and run a business and grow a business, it's quite involving and it's a cool venture. It's the coolest thing in the world as far as I know. My name is James Carey Smith. I'm 67 years old, and I'm in Austin, Texas. And what's your business? The business that we have here is a VC business, venture capital business.
1: But you weren't always a venture capital business, right? Oh, that's correct. I had a
0: fan company. We started uh, Big Ass Fans in 1999 in Lexington, Kentucky sold that company after 19 years. So in December of 2017 to a private equity firm and took part of the staff of the portion that was involved with business development and R&D with me, actually at the behest of the PE firm. And most of the people involved there are relatively young. I think the average age here is early 30s. And I asked them where they wanted to move because nobody wanted to stay in Lexington. And the consensus was that we moved to Austin. And so we did.
1: Your company was in Lexington, Kentucky, and then you asked everybody where you want to go and everyone said, let's go to Austin, Texas.
0: More or less. I mean, I personally looked at a number of places, but when we got right down to it, we looked at Atlanta. We actually even looked at Chicago. I mean, and Dallas, but when everybody took trips and saw these various places they decided they wanted to move here to Austin. And I'm glad they did. So it's a great place. How many
1: people moved?
0: Gosh, I think 10 altogether. Somewhere between 8 and 10.
1: Because we're talking about your product's pretty self-explanatory if no one it's called Big Ass Fans. I didn't had no clue that you're actually started in nineteen ninety nine. I feel like you gained wildfire over probably maybe five years ago is when I started seeing your product everywhere. I don't know if that's true or not. That's when I started seeing it in the gyms or anywhere else, at least I'm in Florida. I don't know if it took a while to get that product down here or whatnot, but basically your fan is just a massive house fan that cools off a lot quicker and a lot more efficient, it seems like.
0: It started as an industrial fan arranged in size from eight feet in diameter to twenty four feet in diameter. So they were used uh, for a very long time. We focused on the industrial market. We had so many requests from schools, institutions, uh, churches, auditoriums, and such that several years into the development of the industrial fan, we developed what we called a commercial fan, which was simply a fan that had a very quiet motor, uh, DC drive, and that is probably one of those fans is probably what you saw on the gym, though, not necessarily. The industrial fans had a very, very, it was form and function dictated form. And so it was a very raw look. It wasn't the intent, but that a lot of people like. And from the commercial fan market, our development, we went on and develop a residential fan. And so in the end, it was $270 million annually. And that took 19 years to do that. So it took a while. I think the majority of our sales, well, not the majority, but the states where we sold the most were Texas, Florida, and California. And we also had offices overseas. We had offices in Singapore and Brisbane, Australia, and Toronto. And we sold a lot of product to the international market.
1: We manufactured all our equipment here in the U.S. So yeah, hot and humid locations. Sounds like we're just big-time buyers, huh? Yes. We did
0: sell a lot of fans, though, in the northern climes because during the wintertime, and these large industrial facilities that have relatively high ceilings, That their heating systems typically produce rises to the ceiling. And with using the fans at a much lower power rating, we would take that heat from the ceiling and move it down to the floor. There was considerable use in the north as well, but typically it was in the southern part of the country and the
1: warm part of the world. Wait, but you're telling me heat rises? Yeah, surprise. No, I'm just kidding. I mean, it's really a game changer. I don't know if anyone has ever seen these fans or been underneath, like, I always have my fans going. I mean, it seems like the most efficient version is using AC all the time. Yes, it is. Yeah, any guy who sweats a lot, I do. I'm just like, fans are always on. I can tell when my fan's off and within a couple seconds. So. Oh, yeah. My dream is to have a big-ass fan in my big family room.
0: There you go. Well, you need to get one.
1: (laughs) Probably be a haiku, uh,
0: more of the residential, though. We used to make those, and I think they still do. They're six, seven feet in diameter. You can get a big one. And what we focused on there was most ceiling fans that you buy, I mean if you went to Lowe's or Home Depot are basically decorations and it's amazing that something can be that damned ugly and still be a decoration but they actually don't work very well they weren't ever made to work very well and we had a lot of engineers and a huge R&D facility and we focused a lot on efficiencies and on airfoil designs Blade Designs, and then IOT. So it was very advanced ceiling fan. It cost more than the $150 fan at Home Depot, but it actually works. So
1: It was really a night and day difference. I remember when my gym did get one, I'm like, I've been waiting. I've been thinking they needed one for so bad because they just run that AC the whole time. i like, dude, if they just had one of those fans and one day they got it and it felt like a mini tornado almost underneath there in a good way because you're hot and sweaty, right? Yeah. Why wouldn't you have that, especially with everyone sweating there?
0: No, I agree. And the fact that it always amazed me in gyms, still does, though not currently, but is that they would pump AC. It's not comfortable. I mean, you're sweating.
1: I agree 100%.
0: <laughs> and then with the fans, I mean, it makes you feel better. And it's using the fact that you sweat and the fact that when water is evaporates, in order to evaporate, it draws it requires a considerable amount of heat, and it's very, very, very efficient. Cooling, especially for humans, and I don't know why they don't. I mean, we saw, I shouldn't say that. We sold thousands of them into uh, fitness centers and gyms but it's silly in my mind to think of anything else because otherwise it's uncomfortable. I used to go to a gym. They had AC and the damned, um condensate because it wasn't very well insulated. The condensate, there was one machine where you could be working on it and you'd feel this drop of cold water every once in a while as the condensate dripped out of the ductwork. It was much better way to approach comfort in a gym is with a fan, not a high velocity fan. But Yeah, it was low velocity. Yeah, for sure. So people understand. It moves a lot of air, but it moves it very slowly. And that I think it's perfect.
1: Right. The stadium here where the Jaguars play was Everbank Field. And they finally put some of those in there because it gets so hot in September as well. When they did those, I was like, what took y'all so long? It just makes sense, especially if it's outside too, right? You can't even have the HVAC going out there. But so one of these big fans, I was curious, you said it wasn't like a $100, like the ones we can get at Lowe's that don't work and basically are just a lighting fixture. I imagine obviously it ranges in prices, but maybe like one that a gym might put in versus the one you might put in an industrial center. Like how much do those cost?
0: Again, they vary in sizes. There's various models and pricing, but the high-end industrial fan, you could spend close to $10,000. Now, again, you could get it for less than that, but you could certainly... With all the bells and whistles, you could go to 10000 On a commercial fan, as you might see in a gym, it might be half that. And then on a uh, residential fan, it would be six to
1: $800. Yeah, and then all those gyms, again, even if it sounds expensive, they spend way more on HVAC oh, per yes. year. Because I used to underrate that. I'm like, how much money are they spending on AC? Especially, like, I'm in Florida, so we just care about AC. We don't even worry about heat. Yeah, sure. But it would pay for itself in one year. Oh, easily. Everyone would be more comfortable, too.
0: <laughs> and it puts on a show. It does. It's not visually interesting or attractive. So, no, you're exactly right.
1: Right. If you had a sales position open, I'm there for you. <laughs> Obviously, you would be a number one choice. It really is funny because my wife no- always knows. She's like, even I can be outside. It's crazy. And I can feel like she turned off the fan inside. I'm like, no, <laughs> we keep the AC high and we run the fan. So. Well, I appreciate you giving us an overview. If anyone didn't know your product, then go to bigassfans.com, check it out. I don't know if we should start in the very beginning how you made it, or again, it's just very interesting that the venture capital company came and purchased y'all, and then you're saying you basically became part of the venture capital business. No, no, no.
0: Private equity firm purchased us. Sorry, private equity. And we started a VC firm. Private equity, obviously, is much more interested in a larger, more developed companies. I'm interested in things that are new and different, and I'm interested in individual entrepreneurs. It was a natural segue to go from the fan company to form a VC firm. And now I will say that when we started, we honestly, we didn't know what we were doing. And we looked at a number of different things, and we looked at starting other companies. And then we looked at private equity, but that's just boring as hell. I mean, I can't even imagine. It's more of a financial, you know, cutting cost. It's just nothing worth talking about or pursuing. And VC, though, you, I meet, and all of us do, because we meet a lot of people, a lot of different people. We look at a lot of different companies. And it fascinates me that there's so many bright individuals out there trying to start a company. And because we're not a typical venture capital firm, because the people that we work together, we have one or two financial people. Typically, a VC firm is made up of bankers, finance guys, and gals. But our firm is engineers and marketing people and people that opened offices that ran divisions within the fan company. They're operators. They're not finance people. And I think that when you're looking at VC, an individual is looking at growing a company and imagines or thinks or determines that they need capital You can certainly go out and get just capital from bankers, but bankers are next to lawyers. They know the least amount about business than anybody. And we realized this right off the bat was that you can give somebody money, but if they don't, if they've never started a business or run a business, they're sort of at a loss. And so we help them. I mean, we try to make it more of a program where we're providing probably more help than from that perspective. It may actually appear to be more of a private equity thing simply because we will we have a department that is constantly looking for individuals to help us on a short term or longer term for our partner to actually get into the business and help them run it. And keeping in mind that we don't own a majority share, we own a small piece of their company, which our philosophy is that we would prefer that the entrepreneur keep the majority of their company, that we want to help them grow versus the typical or what amounts to be typically is the VC, which is own as much as you can and then go out uh, finding somebody else. Not, and But of course, they can't really help because they've never done anything except banking.
1: Yeah, so what have you thought of our group call so far?
0: I like the group call so far. I like how insightful it is. And it's kind of an extension of your interviews. That's how it feels. And I think that if anybody has a real project they're working on, they can benefit a lot from it.
1: One thing that made me want to join was when you shared the first
0: group call. And I heard that episode and I'm like, this is a nice little community. It's friendly, it's genuine. And so that
1: was helpful. Small businesses have unique needs. And despite the current uncertainty, one thing that remains unchanged is the importance of having the right people on your team. When your business is ready to make that next hire, LinkedIn Jobs can help you by matching your role with qualified candidates so that they can help you find the right person quickly. One of the features that I most like about LinkedIn Jobs that can help you find the right candidate is being able to target a candidate by the geographic area. And, well, LinkedIn Jobs is an active community of professionals with more than 690 million members worldwide. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates with the hard and soft skills you're looking for and puts your job post in front of qualified members every day so that it's seen by people looking for jobs just like yours. That's how LinkedIn Jobs can help you hire the right person faster. When your business is ready to make that next hire, Find the right person with LinkedIn jobs. You can pay what you want and get the first $50 off. Just visit linkedin.com slash millionaire. Again, that's linkedin.com slash millionaire to get $50 off your first job post. Terms and conditions apply. I guess to make it clear, so when you sold your big ass fans in 2017, you sold that to a private equity company. And how much did you sell it for? $500 million. So if you took the money that you made from that and then you started your own venture capital company, you're saying? Right. Okay.
0: And it's not a fund because it's all our
1: money, so. Then once you started that venture capital company, you took everything from Lexington, Kentucky, where your company was based, and then you moved with 10 people to Austin, Texas and did the venture capital company? Yes. Well, how many people were left at Big Ass Fans when you sold that? Oh, gosh.
0: <laughs> I think it was probably... The high point, we had about 1,200 people. I think at that time, we might have had close to 1,000 people. I think that since the private equity firm bought it, it's probably half that because that's the way they look at life is... You don't do something new and different. You just try to manipulate what you've got. And normally, a lot of that is cutting staff, which we tried to help them avoid that. And we did, I think, for the first year. If you can't grow a business, if you can't grow the top line, you've got to focus on
1: the bottom line. I mean, you've got to focus on cost. And I think that's typical PE. PE meaning private equity, right? Yes, correct. I'm a smart guy. I know heat rises and PE is private equity. (laughs) I know. All of the things you've learned <laughs> within the last 30 minutes. Amazing. So if it's all right with you, how about we reel it back? And actually one more question before we do. Mm-hmm. Did you ever think you'd get to be this big like when you sold big ass fans?
0: No. I always told people in order to be in business, we had to make money, but we weren't in business to make money. I mean, there was more to it than that. And I think that that's something occasionally people forget is that actually the intellectual rigor that it requires to start a business and run a business and grow a business. It's quite involving, and it's a cool venture. It's the coolest thing in the world, as far as I know. Well, pun intended. No, not intended.
1: Well, because that fan keeps you cool, right? That wasn't a good yeah, one? Yeah,
0: no, no, you're there. You got there before <laughs> I did, but it's a cool thing to do.
1: Cool. Well, if it's all right with you, let's reel back to how Big Ass Fans started. Well, it
0: started in late 98, and I had been involved in a company that where, again, it was our own company, and we had perfected a process to cool large buildings, but we used uh, the evaporation of water in order to do that, which was difficult to understand, difficult to sell, and I was never able to get it. We got it over a million dollars, but not by much, and it was something that if I would have been any smarter, I would have pitched it for something, anything else. But in doing that, it occurred to me that there was an easier way to affect temperature change or comfort, I should say, within large spaces. And I came across some guys that were doing just that, and they had built a fan to cool cows, and it was a very large fan. And as soon as I saw it, they advertised like, two or three times. And I read a lot of trade pubs and wrote for a lot of trade pubs. I mean, that was that's an inexpensive way to do your marketing or it used to be. Today, you'd have to do it online and it makes it a little bit more difficult. But I said, holy cow, that is so cool. Holy cow, get it? See, I got there before you did on that one. I knew it was coming though. So we made a deal and it was a small machine shop. And they manufactured for us and then I sold them and marketed them and I had the rights to do that globally. It started off a little slow, but then it picked up and we had written into the contract that at a certain point, because they imagined that just showing you what we were and what they were thinking about and myself as well, that when we got to 2,000 units, my company could buy the rights, basically buy the IP, and we could manufacture the fans and be a separate entity. And so we did that after two years and we changed the name from HVLS fans, high
1: volume, low speed fans to
0: big ass fans. And then it started to take off.
1: Can I pause you there if that's all right? Sure. So marketing wise, it seems like big ass fans is just a better name than HVLAC. Is that what it was?
0: Well, that's close. But see, there's the problem. I have to be careful
1: when I say that because I'll confuse the letters. It's
0: HVLS high volume because we're moving a lot of air, but we moved it at very low speed with a small motor. I mean, that's the, the gist of the whole thing is it's sort of like a glider with a small engine on it, if you can imagine. You move a lot of air, but it moves very slowly.
1: So did you come up with the name change?
0: Well, actually, our customers provided the name. One of the things we did was we recognized fairly early that it was more effective with a product that did not exist prior to our getting into it. We couldn't use third parties to help us sell. I mean, we couldn't use agents or distributors or reps. They just didn't get it and it was ineffective. And so we sold everything directly to our customers. It was funny because people would call us on the phone and because there was so few of us that we were all answering the phones in the beginning and we would say, HVLS Fan Company, can I help you? And they would, there'd would be a pause. And they'd say, are you those guys that make those big ass fans? So not being the sharpest knives in the drawer, it took us a little bit of time to ship the name, but it was hilarious when we did. As I said, we were in Lexington, Kentucky, and as you probably imagine, it's not the most progressive place in the world. And we had a building about this time, a little bit after, and we painted a big ass on the building. And because we had an ass, I mean, we had a specific little donkey. So we painted him on the side or her. We had to change it to a her because donkeys are incredibly well endowed and you just can't take good pictures of them without doing some work.
1: That's what my wife says about me too.
0: Yeah, no, I've heard that. So it was on the side of the building. It is huge. I mean, the sign was, gosh, maybe 20 by 25. And it was on a major thoroughfare in town, and it created a ruckus. It was funny. And the city council and everybody, we got lots of threats. But on the other side of it, we would have people driving. They would stop and take pictures from across the street. It was funny. We had the postmaster in Louisville, Kentucky, wouldn't ship our mail, which is totally illegal. But we had a lot of our correspondence, our advertising at the time, we used uh, postcards because we could put on one side big ass fans, big pictures, and people loved them. I mean, you would see them when you visited industrial facilities, you could see them tacked up on the boards. But this particular postmaster decided that that was just one step too far, at least one step too far. And he sent them all back to us, which... Again, just made for more PR, made for another story, which was great from our point of view. So we got a lot of attention because of that. But I always tell people that we were more focused and maybe because of the name, we were more focused on the customer experience and the quality of the product. You might say that the fact that we sort of nailed it, and I think we did, with the name that we didn't have to worry about that in a lot of respects took care of itself. And so it gave us the ability to focus on really what drove the business, which was constant iteration of the product and the way it was presented and the way it functioned. And over the period of years, it developed into a system that or a fan that is very, very long lived The goal was to make it the last fan that you would buy in an industrial setting because it lasted Forever because it's just use the best gearboxes and motors. I mean, we made a big deal out of it. And we also made a
1: big deal, huge deal out of customer service. Yeah, you listen to the customer. It's great that they kind of named your company like that, because that's like a gold mine. And you were saying if you would have put out a crappy fan. Then it wouldn't have worked, but you didn't really have to focus on any marketing because you have a cool name and you're saying you're getting free p r and now it's like instead of even you worrying about marketing and maybe that's not your strong suit or having other people there, y'all are focusing on this fan and by making sure that was perfect, and then basically your customer's helping you out and just nailing the company name and the logo's great too. It's just like, okay, this makes sense why this thing took off,
0: yeah, I mean you know you can have a great vehicle. But you have to make sure everybody knows about it. And then what's more important, I think, than that is to build the brand, which is closely associated, but it's associated not simply with the name, it's associated with the fact that it's a superior product. When we started, we obviously, we were the only people in the market. So we had 100% of the market and both in the States and overseas. And our fans were the most expensive and they still are. And the reason is because of the way we did the business. But you have to tell people that. And I think that we spent so much effort on making sure that the experience was beyond what our customers expected, that it not only ran, that it not only did the job, but that if there were any problems, that it was taken care of immediately. I mean, we would just replace the fans. I mean, everybody had a license to lose money on an individual sale, which meaning that if you paid $5,000, And for whatever reason you had a problem, as a salesperson with the company, which again is all direct, they had the ability to say, no, don't worry about it. Let us take care of this for you. And sometimes to the extent that we actually reinstall the fan for them, because if they paid somebody to install a fan, they're going to pay somebody to fix it. So anyway, to make sure that the customer was satisfied, and I think that paid off in the long run. Because as we sold the business we had, even though there were hundreds of competitors after 19 years, we still had somewhere between 80 and 85% market share. That's how you build a company. And that's brand. That's what we were able to do. Was it like an overnight success? There's no such thing. You know, there's two ways to look at overnight success it takes 10 years to get to the point where you can be an overnight success. And I'm sure, I don't know, I would be surprised if there was any such thing. And I think that sometimes that younger entrepreneurs or new entrepreneurs, they imagine that they're failures when that doesn't happen, but it never happens. I mean, that's like trying to write a poem and imagine that your first shot at it is perfect. You can't change it or a magazine article and doing this, it's not the way life works. Life, you need to work at it. If it's easy, you're not doing it right.
1: Well, I guess, Carrie, you haven't gotten on this new TikTok. Have you heard about this? Oh, yeah. I mean, I see when I look at the business section, I'm just checking it out. I got these 20-year-olds telling me I can be a millionaire, just taking their course. And overnight, I'll be good.
0: Well, and you've taken every single one of them, right?
1: Luckily, I'm smart enough not to, but <laughs> unfortunately, I think too many are. And even the people selling those courses, like, I don't know how they live with themselves doing that. Obviously, guys, it's funny, like, some of these people are selling their funnels, their quote unquote, like, sales funnels to people within their sales funnel. Oh, yeah. I think that's part of the issue with the any of the younger entrepreneurs, which I emphasize again, over and over, that it's not really an overnight success. I mean, we even went over, you started in 99 and sold in 2017.
0: No, you don't. I think that when you do this, it's like anything. I mean, it's like going to college, it's like anything. It takes time, and if you do it right and you pay attention and you're continually worried about feedback or you're continually considering feedback and you have to get feedback. I mean, your customers will tell you what they think. What bothers me sometimes with entrepreneurs that we see is they're focusing on Amazon, which is the death star the way I look at things, but are they're focusing on Facebook, or they're focusing on something where they get these positive reviews. And I tell them, who cares? I mean, where are the negative reviews? If I tell you you're the greatest thing ever, how does that help you? It doesn't help you at all. One of the things that we did was we called every single customer, every single customer. And we asked them, for their review of the product. And we weren't interested in hats on the hiney, that doesn't help. We wanted to know what was it about the experience that you did not like? Because then we could do something, then we could make something happen. But you have to focus on the negative in that scenario. And again, most of the comments are positive, but gosh, I mean, you can always be better. You should always focus on being better. And I think that a lot of the kids are more focused on, you know, I've got, so many, 100 five-star reviews, and it's like, big deal. You've sold 2,000 products or 10,000 products, and you've only, I mean, what the hell is that about? So anyway, you have to be more focused, I think, or a lot of these people have to be more focused on feedback and on improvement. There's nothing wrong. The only way you learn is by doing something wrong. I give people advice all the time, and I think about it. If I'm right, good for them. I mean, that's great. It doesn't do anything for me. If I'm wrong and they do what they think they ought to be doing and not what I think they should be doing and they succeed, I learn something. I mean, that's something that's interesting to me. You don't need positive feedback after a while. You just don't. You need problems to solve. That's what makes life interesting. Do you have an example of that? where I've been wrong. I mean, I've been wrong a lot, but I can tell you not so much in what we're doing right now, because you really, the cycle, I mean, you know, you have to invest in a company and they grow and it takes time. And so really, we've only been doing this for a couple of years. So I haven't seen that, but within the fan company, yeah, lots of times. I mean, I was completely focused on the top line. And so there's good things and bad things about that. But it drove me to invest the time and money in developing products that were secondary. And so we made these huge fans. So everybody knew we made huge fans and they were the best and they solved problems. But we thought, well, you know, we make a great big fan. What if we make a small fan? So it's not that it takes any less time or any less effort or money to create a small fan that is distinctive and so forth. And yes, it added revenue, but not enough for that I mean, we shouldn't have done it. We invested too much time in diversity of product, and that was a mistake. I invested a lot in IoT because we worked with... What's IoT? Internet of Things. And... What they would refer to now as AI, but it's not AI, and that drives me crazy. But Because I imagine that with the fans, just like you were saying earlier about using the fans instead of air conditioning, or using fans in conjunction with air conditioning. And so residential fan had more computing power in it than the first computer I ever purchased. And it was able to look at the temperatures and to connect to the AC units and to basically start you off, in your case, let's imagine you're sitting there and starting off with the fan. And as it gets warmer and warmer, the fan increases velocity until it gets to a point that you've decided, you know, well, it's I'm not cool enough. And then your air conditioner turns on, but very low. And so basically, you're using a hybrid fan air conditioning system. And I just thought that was the culmination of my adventure in business and fans. But it wasn't. And we spent a lot of time and a lot of money perfecting that. And the market just had absolutely no interest in it. I had 100 engineers working on that. And it was just a complete waste, total waste.
1: Yeah, because it seems like you might be going from more of like mechanical efficiencies with your big ass fans, right? Versus maybe more of tech centric with your incorporating AC and whatnot. So I could see how, even though someone from the outside might, it's just a fan, right? But when you're thinking it from that perspective, like connecting HVAC in-house and how much more difficult houses are versus installing in a warehouse and whatnot. Oh, yeah. could imagine. In my estimation, it was a big mistake. And I think that that's something that I try to
0: relay to people that I see today, because you can think a lot of things and engineers are crazy cool people and they can do any damn thing that you ask them to do, but it doesn't mean you should be asking them to do things like that. So you have to think
1: about that. So what other lessons do you usually give entrepreneurs that maybe we could learn from with like a story of yours?
0: Well, I think the main lesson, maybe a big lesson, And this sounds like it runs counter to what we do currently, but I don't think it does. I started my business and sold it. I owned the whole thing. I mean, I owned 100% of it. And we never took money, we never went outside. That's the way we did it. The one thing that I tell people, because again, we're in the business of investing money, of giving other people money to use to help them in their business, I mean, bootstrapping, I think you learn an awful lot. Unfortunately, it's like everything else. You learn a lot of things more than once. And the advantage of having money at the right time, and you can get money at the wrong time. I mean, if somebody had given us when we started the business in 1999, if somebody said, holy cow, Kerry, I think this is a great idea. Here's a million bucks and I want 40% of your business or whatever the hell it is. And I have no idea what I would have done with that. I would have wasted it. I can tell you that. I mean, just because that's because you don't know. Yeah, you would have made another house fan. (laughs) No kidding. Who knows (laughs) what I would have done. And so when you're bootstrapping, you have to be very, very careful. You watch everything. But it took me 19 years to get from zero to 500 million. I think that having done that, What I tell people is the only thing I can provide or we can provide as a company is we can shorten that time frame. And when you get right down to it, I think more important than money is if I was able to do what I did, not in 19 years, but if it took me 10 years or if it took me eight years, that's incredible. I mean, it'd be freaking incredible. And so when we look and talk about things with the partners That's what we talk about because that's what we can do. There's certain times and places where you need money. There's times and places you don't need money and you shouldn't take any. We we talk to a lot of people where we say, you know, you should just do this. I mean, I don't need to have any money to do this, to tell you these things, to give you advice. That's gratis. When you get to the point where it's going to do you some good, where it's going to accelerate what you're doing, That's when you need the money. And then even if you need the money there, what we've determined is that if you give people money, even at those times, a lot of times they still don't know what to do with it. And so they'll say, oh, well, I need marketing. So they'll hire some knucklehead marketing firm or PR firm. And I'm sure they exist. I'm sure there's a good PR firm out there, but I've never run into them. And they waste the money that I give them, which means that if they waste it, they're going to need more of it which means I'm going to own more of their company. And I tell them this, that's not what I want to do. I want you to succeed. It's a big deal to me for you to succeed because I don't need any more money. And so that's probably the most important thing. Now, it's hard to say that the people listen to you when you talk like that. And I don't know. I think some people do. I don't know that I would have. So it's not like, oh, you know, you're just not as smart as I am because that has nothing to do with it. It's just that when you are driven to start a business, you are focused and it's very difficult for you to take advice. And I know it is.
1: It sounds like to me, so the only time it would have been worth you taking money for your own business, like you're saying, someone give you a million dollars and taking 40%, it seems like it's only logical in your eyes. And I kind of think the same thing. I mean, if I'm thinking people always think, quote unquote, like marketing might solve the issue, but if you were like backed up on sales and you actually needed money to produce more of the product, yes, that would be the time where it makes sense. You're exactly right. It's almost never marketing because you can do a lot of
0: marketing in-house. Marketing firms... Off times is sales and it oftentimes times is building a sales channel, a different sales channel. Or in the best cases, it's I need more production because that's a pretty simple, easy thing. And then if you're to that point, though, you should be able to go to a bank. I mean, always consider that there's equity when you're starting a company. And a lot of kids, equity is like found money. I mean, it doesn't cost anything, not in the short run as soon as you can use debt, as soon as you can get debt, you should use debt because those guys don't own anything. I mean, the bank doesn't own the company unless you default, but, or, you know, go bankrupt. But you have to remember, I meet a lot of people. We see a lot of people that they are great people. They have great ideas. And it turns out we always ask them, how much equity do you, the entrepreneur, own? And you'd be surprised. I've met people that had 7%, 14%, It's horrible. And so you're working for somebody. You're not, I mean, it's terrible. You didn't start this. And these people are bright people. I mean, they're go-getters and they're aggressive, but they've given away their business. And if somebody owns they you work for them. I mean, that's life. And we've had some of these people come to us and say, Yes, this is great. This is what I want to do. I need money to build out this market or do something else. But they only own thirty-five percent of the company. Well, you know. I really shouldn't be talking to you. I should be talking to the people that own the sixty-five percent because you really have very little to do with this. You're in essence an employee with benefits. That's it. And I think that's one of the things that people in the beginning, when they're kids, they make that mistake. It's a mistake because everybody else is doing it. Because you get a $10
1: million in funding
0: and you call mom and tell her how great life is.
1: She'll never believe me. (laughs) Yeah. Well, yeah, I think we see that shark tank. If someone comes in, they say they own ten percent of the company. They're almost like Just stop talking.
0: Yeah, they're
1: exactly right. What's been the hardest personal challenge for you while building this business? Because it seems we basically talked about the business aspect this whole time. But how about personally and Family life?
0: When I started, I've started businesses before this. And the first business, I came home from work one day and I told her, I just can't do this anymore. I've got it. I can't work for these people. I just can't do it. I want to go into business. This is what we want to do. And she said, well, fine, we can sell the house. And she's very, very engaged in that. So it was very easy from that perspective. So I can't say that I had any problems like that. I mean, I think that when you're building a business, the biggest concern is finding the right people. And that's always a problem. That's the biggest problem to the extent that we have people now here at Unorthodox Ventures that That's their focus is finding people not necessarily to work with for us, but to work for and with our partners. It's very hard because if you've never done it before, you just make mistakes. It's just ridiculous. And once you get invested in a specific person, it's hard to disengage. That's the hardest part of the business. That is always the hard part of the business.
1: So what's the secret to finding those people? Well, it's still hard. But the secret is
0: to look for people that when you don't need them. I mean, I guess that's the, you should put money away when you patch the roof when it's not raining. But we continually look for people. And I guess that was, you know, you ask about mistakes. I think one of the mistakes I made with the fan company was that I didn't take my top person at the company when we started, because he worked through to the end. And rather than putting them into sales, which was an immediate benefit, is to put this person into recruiting because it was doubly difficult because we were in Lexington, Kentucky. It's not as hard, I can tell you, in Austin because there are people that want to move to Austin. Trust me, nobody really wanted to ever move to Lexington. (laughs) Well, it was hard. I mean, it makes a difference.
1: That's the reason I made sure I said Lexington, Kentucky, so people knew. It's like, I live in the southeast and watch college football and know where it is. But once you say Kentucky, people are like, where is that? What country?
0: Yeah, right. Yes, and we did wear
1: shoes. You got
0: internet? Yeah, right, Just barely. I think that's hard. And that's something that you should always be looking for people. And the one thing that I think we do now, and we did it then was if you find somebody that has the characteristics and can fit into the culture and is intelligent and is curious and is ambitious, that you hire them. And then you figure out where you're gonna put them. Because doing it the other way is just makes life hard. And I realize that people hear that and they go, well, wait a minute, I don't have all the money in the world. I've gotta be more focused. But I really do think that that's where you should spend some money. You really, really should. It makes a big difference.
1: So, yeah, I appreciate you uh, scheduling a call and becoming a Patreon member.
0: I'm glad I did. Yeah, I think one of the Patreon ones where you were talking to the woman and it kind of just broke down. I was enjoying the podcast going through. Like, I was like, okay, this is a good story. And she's talking about stuff. I felt like I could trust what I was hearing more because I was able to hear the fact that when somebody's not making sense of what they're saying, you didn't just let them ease around it.
1: Yeah. So that's kind of the idea with the Patreon membership.
0: I'm happy to do it just because I've gotten so much value from it. So I feel like I owe it to you. I've literally made a lot of money on some of the stuff that I've learned. I feel like I owe it to you. So for me, it's no big deal, but I love you even more now that we've got a chance to chat because you are who I thought you were. And I and I love that.
1: Do you think trying to find the younger people like I'm trying to figure out what's the best hiring practice? Like you're saying Some people be like, I don't have enough money. So maybe they try lots of different younger people coming in and out and trying to find which one makes sense. Like, what's your suggestion for that? I think that
0: at the fan company, the average age was even lower than it is here. And we had a lot of people that were directly out of college or within a few years of being directly out of college. And I like people always make fun of millennials. I mean, those were our best workers because you give somebody before they have taken to the plow at somebody else's or some other larger company and learned bad habits that if you can bring them on and give them opportunities, be surprised. I mean, if they have the ability and you give them the slack they can really produce. And I think that that's one other thing that I learned at the fan company later, not gosh, it took me 10 years to figure that out, but that I shouldn't be looking for somebody to run sales that came from, you know, another company because they knew what they knew, which wasn't a lot. And they knew the ropes, but they couldn't think outside the box. But you get a bunch of kids and you say, this is the problem we've got to solve. And I mean, you've got to solve it. They'll come up with things that are new and different. And that's probably the best way to do it. I would never hire I'm probably an ageist, even though I'm an old guy, but you have to be very careful about hiring people that have worked for other companies for extended periods of time. Much better in my estimation to hire younger people that are curious than hire somebody that knows the ropes.
1: Yeah, that was like I had a friend in college where she wanted to be a bartender and she didn't have any bartending experience in the bar she went to. I was like, she told him I don't have any experience. He's like, good, I want that because I hate (laughs) when I have the bartenders who quote unquote have experience and then just do a crappy job and steal alcohol and all that other stuff.
0: Yeah, yeah. They learned the wrong ropes. That's not a good place to be. But I think it saves time. And again, it doesn't mean that everybody you hire is going to be a winner. But There, You build a bond with people like that because you gave them the opportunity to use their heads, to use their abilities. And I think that that's probably much more rare than it should be in companies. And so, yeah, I'd rather have somebody that never done it before.
1: It does save time, even though initially you might think you're like, I'm going to hire someone who doesn't know this stuff, where you might have hired someone from a sales company somewhere else, but it's not really worth it in the long run. That's how we should always be looking at these things, save way more time.
0: No, you're exactly right. I mean, they can mess things up that you'll be years fixing. I'm serious. Yeah, just horrible, horrible
1: things. What experience did you have in that? It sounds like you had at least one experience of that.
0: One of the things we did, and I think it was a good idea when we started, is we decided that our customers, they had a very difficult time with lighting. And there's some big lighting companies, but they sell through distributors and sell through dealers and sell through contractors. And some long chain. And they would have preferred that we provided lights, that we did that for them. And so we said, fine, okay, we'll make the best light in the world. And so we spent a year and a half developing LEDs that were the lighting fixtures and everything associated.
1: Yeah. That would actually go on the fan? No, no, no. These were completely separate. Okay. I'm making sure. All right. Yeah.
0: And so... I didn't know anything about lighting. And so I thought, well, you know, I need to hire some people that know for the sales side of it, because I had a lot of people that could sell fans, but they didn't know anything about lighting. And so I hired a bunch of people or a number of people over a period of time at higher level people that from the lighting industry. And I want to tell you, that was the biggest I hate to say the biggest mistake I made because I probably already said that was the biggest mistake I made. I made a lot of mistakes, but I swear to gosh, that was just a nightmare. I mean, those people had worked in the lighting industry for 15 years and they knew all the wrong stuff, all the wrong stuff. They did things the wrong way. We had one of them, just terrible people, couldn't sell. They knew all the ways to avoid actually doing any work and it was a big, big problem. And the best salesmen we had for that, honestly, were, (laughs) this sounds terrible, but for kids over their summer vacations and actually going out and selling lights, which was not the way we did a lot of things, but we tried everything. We tried every single way to sell things. And so we went from zero in the lights to 30 million very, very quickly. But again, it was hampered because of the people that we had working for us, the managers and the lighting division, sales managers, not the engineers that just messed every, I mean, they were pathetic and it could have been a much, much better product line and a much larger division, but they were focused continually always on the perks because they were accustomed to the perks. I mean, that's where they came from and they talked a good game, but they were totally uninterested in in our company. So you have to be careful with that. Salesmen are, and I was a salesman, but you have to be careful with them.
1: So would you say this was a light bulb moment for you?
0: <laughs> yes. It was an LED moment for me.
1: So but salesman, what you're about to say there too, I remember this from a different interview. I can't remember exactly which one. It is off the top of my head. But they said, actually, I do remember. It was Gail Davis. If anyone looks up that one, I'll look up the number. But she was saying salespeople are good at selling themselves, right? To you, to hire them. Like that's what they do. So... Gail Davis' is episode 143, in case anyone was wondering. But I thought it was funny, like, as quote, I remember that. And it sounds like the same thing happened with you.
0: Yeah. And the other thing that salesmen...
1: And saleswomen and sales non-genders.
0: Yes, yes. Every sales.
1: <laughs> uh-huh.
0: I'll tell you that I trust the women more than I do the guys. Because they weren't as apt to fudge. <laughs> their sizes as the guys. But the the one thing that salesmen will do, you have to be very careful. I mean, they're very, very important people. And there's some of them that are great. I mean, absolutely great and wonderful people. But they spend a lot of time focusing on how much money they're making and how they're incented and how they're paid. And you can't blame them for it. I mean, That's what they do. But when you're setting up incentives, bonuses, you have to be very careful with that. You have to think it all the way through we've talked to people that have a, you know, they hire a sales guy and they say, yeah, you know, we want you to go out and we're going to incent you on all of the accounts you open up. And you go, yeah, because, you know, an account, that means it's a good account, right? And that means it's in the best interest of the company. Yep. Yep. But then you forgot the fact that you said you were going to pay him based on the number of accounts he opened. And he'll open accounts that what the hell is this about? We cannot deal with these people. They have bad credit. They have this, they have that. But you promise to pay them on that. You have to be very, very careful with that. It's much more complicated than that because that's what they think about. They're driven by that compensation. And so you can't be flip about when you establish the
1: parameters. Yeah. So they could be opening up 10 accounts under 10 different LLCs that they just bought last week, you're saying. Well, no, it's not so much that it's... I'm joking. I think we all understand that you could be doing it with shitty businesses that you're like, why did you do that? Yeah, (laughs) well,
0: are making it so you expecting to hire to the business is focused on the state of Texas, but then you turn around because you can handle the distribution within Texas. You can handle the sales, the production, all of this. And then you turn around and he's promised product in california and new york and three places in atlanta and it's like what the hell we can't make any money doing that but you paid him you told him accounts by account i'm going to pay you on the accounts and that's what an account is it doesn't necessarily mean that that is profitable so you have to be very careful with that
1: that's word i was just about to use to their accounts but who knows if they were actually profitable like you're saying if you're shipping these things no, everywhere. Exactly. so any suggestions for incentives for like salespeople that maybe you've learned from that And again, this is for the business owner in mind, like the way we do the commission structure or whatever to make sure it is profitable for the business. Because at the end of the day, that matters.
0: Yeah. I had two approaches, three approaches to this. One was that the salespeople were paid on a bonus structure, the same bonus structure that everybody in the company was, because we had a culture and we were all driven. We were all supposed to be driven in the same direction. And we were to be looking out for each other because we had a very collaborative, I think, which we hadn't gotten into, but a very collaborative, a very close company culture. And to pay the salesman a commission didn't seem right because you weren't paying the engineer a commission. You weren't paying your marketing guy a commission. It didn't seem fair. And we wanted everybody to work together. That worked to some degree. We tried commissions, but again, commissions, at the end of the day, From a company's perspective, it's the margin that you're concerned about because you could sell, I mean, you can have a salesman, as I say, that sells product in a place you can't get it or at a price you can't support. And so you have to be very careful with that. The other way that we compensated, not necessarily salesmen, but salesmen were included in this was we had a program where they were accorded a certain percentage of what amounted to equity—it wasn't really equity, but it was a an appreciation right—and so that was something that wasn't as successful, even though in the end it wound up being a lot of money because salesmen a lot of times are very short have a very short-term focus. But at the end, I mean, when I sold the company, we had a, basically an, uh, stock equity, I mean, a stock equity—I mean, equity uh, program. And so I wrote checks to people and it amounted to $50 million. And so it was a big deal, but a salesman normally can't. That's too long for the typical salesman. He doesn't focus or she doesn't focus that long. We drove it, but again, we drove to the bonus based on the amount of money that the company made. Because commissions, anything else, it's very difficult, very difficult.
1: Were you just giving them all? It seemed like maybe what worked best was it like a percentage of profits or something of that nature.
0: Yes, at the end of the year, I mean, we paid a lot. I think that we haven't talked about it, but we had a what I think was a unique culture and was very collaborative. And even though it was got to be over a thousand people, which is difficult to maintain that collaborative feel, we paid based on the profits in the year. Everybody got a piece. And so it was. They got a piece based on their tenure, based on what their supervisor, I mean, their feedback from the people that worked with them. But normally, it wasn't the guys that got the most money on that were the people that worked in production because they had the most tenure typically. And it worked out to normally at the end of the year, I don't know, it could be anywhere from four weeks to eight weeks of salary for Christmas. And the same thing for the salespeople. Salespeople, though, we had to do it more on a quarterly basis. Salespeople are very, 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 (laughs) they're different. It's short term. They couldn't wait all year for that. My God. They may have a college education and the guy that's packing your fans may not, but they've got to see the money right now, right now, right now. The guy packing the fans, he was fine with it on an annual basis, but not your college educated salesperson. Different people, different personalities.
1: So the collaborative culture, do you want to touch on that? Because it sounds like you wanted to, what ended up working and making it?
0: Again, a lot of it, or some of it was based on the fact that we had a SARS program, which was a stock appreciation rights program, which meant, as I said in the end, that when I sold the company, I owned 100% of the equity, but in terms of the appreciation rights, there was $50 million of that that was due the employees. And So I wrote checks for that. Some of those people were multimillionaires after that. There was a lot of them that were millionaires. It wasn't everybody at the company, obviously. It was 150, 160 people.
1: Well, that makes good company culture if you can make everyone millionaires, right?
0: Well, I couldn't make everyone millionaires. (laughs) And some of them, honestly, some people come to work for a job. That's it. They're not invested in anything, no matter what. But some people come with heck of a lot more. And those are the people you pay. it I mean, you have to pay attention to, you have to pay them, you have to compensate them. It's only fair. We had for all of the production people, we found that you could have a, in the beginning, we didn't have any time clocks or anything, you know, you're supposed to get there at eight. But that sort of played out after you have more than a couple hundred people, that's, you can't control it. And then we decided that we still had a problem because some people would clock in at eight, some people clock in at 745, some people clock in at 830. And so we said, okay, fine. Uh, What we're going to do is if you come in to work every day, if you're not sick, if you come into work every day on time, that you get a bonus at the end of the month and we have a lunch and we do these things. And so it amounted to, I don't know, over the period of if you came to work on time every day over on an annual basis, you could add something like $2,400 to your pay. So a couple of hundred dollars a month. So I guess $50 a week. And it was amazing because nobody was late because that was just an easy way to add a buck and a quarter to their hourly wage, the guys and gals in production. They weren't going to miss that. And so that was very easy and that paid for itself. That was easy wheezy. But then we had a big launch and then we gave away money at the launch. And I was what I'd call a peripatetic manager. I always, basically, we had several plants, but they were all in the same city. They were all in Lexington. And it was easy for me to get around and see everybody and talk to everybody and do various things. And we, I don't know, it's just that we always had something going on. We had two people that their job was basically activities. And so they tried to make sure that every week at least every 2 weeks that there was something offered so you could go bowling or golfing or this or that or rafting or canoeing and go to the horse races not everybody went to every single thing but there was enough of it that if you wanted to you could do that because we wanted to make it a attractive place and a lot of them because as we grew we had families and so you want to make sure that there's something for the kids too. And, and so we had picnics and that sort of thing. And and it was interesting. I was telling somebody that I never thought I would enjoy bowling on a Saturday, which is not my thing and bowling and certainly not on Saturday, but we did that. And for kids, for the parents and the kids, it was a freaking hoot when you have a, because we get the whole bowling alley and serve pizza, but you had to make sure did you got your pizza first, because if you didn't, God knows what was on it with a bunch of five-year-olds and 10-year-olds scarfing down pizza and, and playing with those bowling balls. But it was a hoot. I mean, it was great. So we tried to make it so that we were all in it, all in it together. We did things like that.
1: Well, Okay, I've learned something else today. <laughs> yeah, right. Well, oh, other than that. No, don't eat pizza after a five-year-old if they've been bullied. No, we're getting way deeper than this, my friend. <laughs> You've used a word I've literally never heard in my life, peripatetic. Peripatetic. Yeah, it just means walk, walk about. I go to this website. It's called google.com, and I looked it up. It's traveling from place to place, in particular working or based in various places for relatively short periods. So easier to say you just kind of jump around is yeah. what you would do
0: it was a good way to get a feel for what was going on and also to talk to everybody. And it was interesting to me. I found, I would talk to people and say, tell me what's going on, not what's going on. I don't really care, but tell me what your biggest problem is at work. Would they say you? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But no, but they'd say, well, you know, it's taken me forever to get this, foil from one end of the line to the other and yep, yep, yep. But it was just part of their job. And so you go, okay, fine, let me figure that out. And so it was a way to find a problem to make it easier on the people that were employed doing a particular job. Uh, And it also, I think, made people recognize, yeah, no, he he really cares about what I do and how I do it, trying to make it better. And that's what we should all do. I don't know. It's just a culture.
1: Well, can I stop on that? Because I think it's a good point. And so, like, I try to say the same thing too. In any business owner who's listening right now, if you just ask them one time, they're gonna say nothing, right? And then you ask them a two or three times, they're probably still not gonna say anything. You got to keep asking. It's kind of like the reviews thing. It's basically the same principle. It's like you have to keep asking to figure it out. Because if you don't, they're just not gonna say anything. Like, no one wants to say anything. Generally speaking, they don't want to say anything negative. But you're like, hey, I really want to make it better. And then the more you keep pressing, it's not you being annoying. You're trying to make your business better, right? And you're trying to make their life better. And then eventually they'll bring up things that they would have never brought up by you digging in deeper. Yep.
0: No, you're exactly right. It's just being human. I think it's foolish to imagine that you can run a company or even a department with a setting on your ass. It just doesn't work that way.
1: I think you brought it round circle. I mean, I don't know if there's any last words of wisdom you have for anybody who's listening. Get to work. (laughs) I appreciate you putting that emphasis on there, because again, I think we even (laughs) talked about that in the beginning. It's not an overnight journey, as we just heard through your story. So we appreciate you coming on and sharing.
0: Thank you very much. It was very enjoyable.
1: You're saying with your new business, I mean, do you seek out businesses? I'm wondering if anyone was listening, if if there's a reason that they might want to contact you, or maybe you could help them, or maybe some investment there.
0: Oh, yeah. No, of course. That's what it is. I mean,
1: people calling us, people getting in contact with us, that's the way it works. So we'd love it. So is there a certain size company you're looking for? More than one person?
0: Well, no, not necessarily. I think that our preference would be a company that is post-revenue. I mean, there's lots of people with ideas, but you can't really do anything with an idea. I mean, an idea might be the best idea in the world, but you really have to put it to work. And so it doesn't matter how many people are there. It doesn't even matter what your revenue is. When you have revenue, all that says is, the market's taking a look at it and they like it. I mean, they, there is some level of acceptance. And additionally, the people, if you're an entrepreneur and you have created or have gained some revenue, there's a lot that goes on. I mean, there's a lot of different hats that these business people that start businesses have to wear. And it's nice If they've worn a number of them because they're a little bit more cognizant of what they need and how they're going to put money to work. And so that's good. But I will say that very few people come to us with an idea, but we can't really do much with that. What we're not especially interested in are people that have larger companies. I mean, we can write larger checks for larger companies and we can help them. But the larger the company gets, it really does move into a different aspect. And a lot of times in those situations, they really do. They may want some advice or they may can use some advice, but they've gotten to the point where if we're talking to them, they were looking for money. That's not as interesting to us, though we do entertain it.
1: And your company's called Unorthodox Ventures? Correct. And yeah, what's the best way for someone to reach out either about their business or also say thank you for doing the interview?
0: Drop us a line. Go to the website and drop a line. I'm just Carrie at unorthodoxventures.com, c-a-r-e-y at unorthodox
1: thank you for sharing your story
0: thank you guy i appreciate it you take it easy
1: guess what we've got over 25 special patreon episodes ready for you to listen to right this very second all you have to do is become a member and you'll unlock this magical vault of knowledge Plus, by becoming a member, you'll be able to join our group calls with past guests and ask your questions directly to them. Another plus by becoming a member? Well, you'll help us keep coming out with podcast episodes on this very feed. Because without sponsors, it ain't financially viable for my team and me to keep producing these episodes for you. So help us keep this train moving forward by becoming a Patreon member today. Just visit the link in your episode description below Or go to millionaire-interviews.com forward slash Patreon. It's tough, isn't it? But that's to a podcast that goes to like 30,000 people. So it's just like there's so many people who listen and don't do anything. You know what I'm saying? I want to give you credit for what you're doing because I'm sure there are a lot of people listening. But I was
0: curious how many people are paying. I mean, for me, my dad even said, "Bren,
1: why are you paying this guy? What, what's he giving? I said, it's. I want him to keep going. That's why I'm paying, yeah. you know? And I do believe in pay it forward. It's not a lot of money, and, you know, I could do the math.